If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Seventy-five years on, it's time to kick into touch once and for all this idea of Little Britain. Little Britain is a post-war myth. We were not little. We were not David against Goliath. We actually had much in our favour, not least the fact that we had the world's largest empire the world had ever known, with some kind of sort of 500 million men we could call upon if we really needed to. That was James Holland discussing the Battle of Britain at a lecture he gave at our 2015 History Weekend event. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In this week's episode... We're bringing you a lecture from our 2015 History Weekend event at Malmesbury. The speaker is James Holland, a historian, author and broadcaster who specialises in the Second World War. For his talk at Malmesbury, he chose to focus on the Battle of Britain in the year of its 75th anniversary. 
well, thank you all very much for coming. I've had a terrible weekend with cars. I've got this beautiful, lovely old 1949 Citroen, which I drive all the time. And last time I came up here, I drove very happily up here. On Friday, the gearbox casing cracked. It was just an absolute catastrophe. And then I drive over here, take my wife's car. It's modern. It should work. It shouldn't be any problems whatsoever. And of course, it gets a flat tyre. You open up the boot, and of course, it's modern, so it doesn't have a spare tyre. And then you sort of scrabble around looking for the wheel nut. And oh, no, it's not. It's on the kitchen windowsill table, you know, oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, I got here. So um, thank you all for your forbearance on that. Um, the Battle of Britain, it's a, the 75th year anniversary year, and um, it's amazing how much sort of brouhaha there's been about it, I think. You know, we've had TV programmes and amazing fly-pass and memorials, you know, commemoration services in, in Westminster Abbey and lots on the press and in the news and interviews with the very, very last of the few. And it sort of shows, I think, what, what a sort of important part it plays in our island's history, but, but the sort of place it has sort of closer, to, closer than that. It, it's sort of such a big moment, isn't it? it? You know, the finest hour and all the rest of it. And I just want to say right here, right now, that I do think the Battle of Britain is one of the key turning points in the Second World War and one of the key turning points in British history, probably. And, um, but there is, like a lot of things, there is an accepted narrative, and that is... A narrative which is very familiar in many ways, but when you start looking at it in detail, doesn't quite stack up. And I start with this very jolly, bright and breezy painting depiction, the sort of thing you'd get on a sort of commemorative tin of biscuits over the Battle of Britain. But, but look at it, the sun shining, you know, there's the down 109, the white cliffs, spitfires, you know. I mean, if you were to sort of conjure up an image of 1940 in the Battle of Britain, that's sort of it in most people's minds. And yeah, as I say, I don't think that narrative is actually particularly accurate. Not least because the August of 1940 was rather like the August we've just had. Pretty soggy uh, and pretty wet. In fact, actually, Goering, the commander-in-chief of the Luftwaffe, didn't get four clear days of good weather without a drop of rain until the third week of September 1940. From the moment he started his, his Eagle Day, you know, he's getting ready for Eagle Day at the beginning of August, through to the, that third week of September. So seven weeks, about four clear days of weather. So it wasn't that great. Um, but I also, the other thing that's really interesting is when you look at the, uh, the dispatch that Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding wrote following the Battle of Britain, he was very interesting about the opening of it because he said, um, in my view, the Battle of Britain really started on the 1st of September 1939 when we went to war, but obviously I can't write about all that. Um, and so the date I've chosen in July is all rather arbitrary, but let's just go with that for now. And I'm going to say it ended on the 31st of October. In other words, uh, although officially it's from, you know, second week of July to the end of October... Kind of treat that with a pinch of salt because actually it's a bit more loose than that and a bit more ill-defined than that. And I certainly think, and this is what I wrote a book about the Battle of Britain some five years ago, it was published five years ago for the 70th, and I argued that actually you need to go back. You need to go look at the whole of that summer of 1940 Possibly not too much at the Scandinavia adventure or misadventure, whichever way you want to look at it. But certainly you need to look at the Battle of France and, 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 the, you know, and the Low Countries and what was going on in the Blitzkrieg. Incidentally, Blitzkrieg, 
a catchphrase, not a doctrine. Uh, it's important to have that. You know, we, we know it as the Blitzkrieg now, but that was not a, a doctrine that the Germans would, would have called it. They would have called it something called Bewegenskrieg, which is, amounts to the same thing. It is a, a, a lightning war of, of manoeuvrability uh, and encirclement. Uh, um, but when, again, when we're thinking of 1940, we're thinking of the Battle of France and the Low Countries, the attack in the West by the Germans, that's what you're thinking of. You're thinking of tough, mean-looking Nazis armed to the teeth with the best kit in the world and, and the best helmets and the best uniforms and the best everything and the best tanks and so on and so forth. Um, you know, this sort of vast military modernised mollet, which no one in 1940 seemed to have any answer to whatsoever, not least France, which, you know, on paper had more artillery pieces, more tanks, and even larger army in terms of boots on the ground than the Germans did. Um, and yet, of course, you know, it's defined for Britain, and the, and the kind of prequel to the Battle of Britain is the evacuation from Dunkirk, you know, which showed lots of British pluck. We managed to get most of our boys away, but we left all our kit behind, didn't we? And, and of course, you know, it was a defeat. And... One of the features of that Blitzkrieg campaign, of course, is, is the Luftwaffe and the total dominance they seem to have. You know, Messerschmitt 109 sort of careering over northern France, shooting up airfields. And, of course, they can choose when they're going to attack. You know, uh, um, they can sort of go, right, we're going to go and blitz that airfield this morning. You know, bury Dulac or whatever it was. Uh, and they'd sh go off and, and attack catch them, the hurricanes or French moraines or whatever on the ground, shoot them up on the ground. If the hurricanes and, or the RAF or the French Air Force happen to get in the air, then they just have to sort of circle around, vainly hoping they'd bump into some, some Luftwaffe. Um, so having that advantage for the Luftwaffe's point of view of choosing when they're going to attack, that really does mean that they can dominate the skies in a way that the Allies, the British, the, the, the Dutch, the Belgians and, and the French are always on the, they're always, you know, just having to react to everything that's happening from the Luftwaffe. And so this gives the Luftwaffe uh, an enormous sense of self-confidence and self-belief that they can knock off anybody. You know, they can, they can destroy any, any um, air force. And of course, what you have to remember is that, yes, there is very, very, so very, very basic radar, but basically there isn't in terms of any kind of coordinated air defence system over France or the Low Countries. So for the most part, the Allied air forces in France in May and June 1940 are operating blind. They're just having to guess where the Germans are going to be as far as they possibly can. And they just got to hope that they're not destroyed on the ground. But most of them were. That is the truth of the matter. Um, and, and a very sort of key part of the Luftwaffe in 1940, of course, and in the Blitzkrieg, is those dive bombers, those Stukas, screaming down with their banshee wails, terrifying everybody, making um, refugee columns flee, um, shooting up factories and bombing factories and all the rest of it. You know, that's the image. And, of course, you know, attacking um, the evacuation force from Dunkirk as well. So France is defeated, we go back to England with our tail between our legs and it all looks pretty dicey for a bit. And there is, again, part of the myth is this idea of Britain in 1940, David against Goliath. David against this huge military mo unstoppable Moloch. And here's this very famous cartoon by David Lowe, Sir David Lowe, uh, in the Daily Express when it used to be a really quite good newspaper, uh, um, uh, 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 saying very well alone. And there was this feeling that, you know, we've got rid of it, you know, we are just little Britain. You know, it's that kind of image, isn't it, of sort of you know, 
plucky Brits, all a bit amateurish, a bit kind of sort of backs to the wall, a bit Captain Mannering. Um, and in fact, the same day, that very same day this, this cartoon appears, you know, that's when Churchill does his great finest hour speech. Um, that amazing sort of unifying rhetoric, which just electrifies the British people and all the people of the free world in the summer of 1940. I mean, it's just amazing. You think how many people sort of tune into, I don't know, the Strictly Come Dancing final or something on Christmas Eve. You know, it's sort of millions. Uh, um, but, you know, some 64.5% of the United Kingdom were tuning in to those speeches of Churchill's in 1940. That includes children. I mean, that's just a, that's almost everyone. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Anyway, I digress. But my point is, is there is this image that, that, that we are little Britain, you know, when actual fact, Britain has an awful lot going for it in 1940. There is this terrible wobble, the darkest moment that Britain has in the entire Second World War. The closest we get to defeat is Monday the 27th of May. And that is the day that Lord Halifax, who is the man that everyone expected to be Prime Minister when Chamberlain uh, reluctantly resigned on the 10th of May 1940, uh, um, the most respected politician in Britain, former Viceroy of India, known for his good sense and, and sort of sound judgment at every turn. He is the one who is suggesting as Foreign Secretary to the new Prime Minister, to the War Cabinet of just five members, that perhaps they ought to kind of start opening peace negotiations. Just have a, you know, open the door and just sort of test the water here. Churchill, of course, realises that this is a catastrophic mistake. You cannot possibly do that. Once you've opened the door, it's going to blow wide open and you're stuffed. And What's really interesting is Churchill has only just become Prime Minister who has a reputation for not having sound judgment, who is known to be a man who likes a tipple, who has all sorts of form which would not suggest that he is the right man to be leading Britain at this moment of deep, deep crisis. The Dardanelles, General Strike, you know, abdication crisis, etc., etc., etc. He is the one, ironically, who is showing enormous sound judgment. And that's because he's got this great geopolitical understanding. Halifax might be a very, very fine peacetime politician, but he doesn't have that kind of worldliness, that statesmanship, that natural statesmanship that, that Churchill has. And Churchill realises that actually, A, it would be fatal to open the door to any kind of um, peace negotiation at all. But B, that actually there's a lot said for it. The panic of May and uh, late, sort of middle to late May and early June in Britain is just that. It, and, and you can understand why. Oh my God, you know, mighty France, our allies being defeated. We're being defeated. You know, no no one seems to be able to stop the Nazis. Obviously, it's just a, you know, it is literally the proverbial river crossing across the English Channel. You know, you can see how everyone's getting more and more worked up uh, as this sort of stream of just astonishing victories that the Germans seem to be pulling off uh, uh, takes them to the very kind of, you know, just across the, the, the English Channel. And suddenly, you know, by... by you know, but by the sort of second week of June, the swastika is flying on Cap Grenade, just sort of, you know, 20-odd miles across the channel. You can see why everyone's getting worked up. However, there is lots to be said for Britain. Uh, and we have to really, really move away. 75 years on, it's time to kick into touch once and for all this idea of Little Britain. Little Britain is, is a post-war myth. We were not little. We were not David against Goliath. We actually had much in our favour, not least the fact that we had, you know, the world's largest empire the world had ever known with some kind of sort of 500 million men we could call upon if we really needed to. Um, and we also had the world's largest navy by a country mile. 
in the summer of 1940. And if that wasn't enough, we also had the world's largest merchant fleet of some 33% of merchant shipping. On top of that, we had access to around 80-85% of the world's shipping. So a huge amount. I mean, that kind of access to resources that would just, you know, that would just make Hitler weep with envy, frankly. Um, and also, Germany wasn't quite the big military moloch that everyone thought. You know, Germany uses 1.5 million horses in the First World War, uses 3.5 million in the Second World War. Only the spearhead is mechanised. They have a very kind of heavy boots on the ground armed forces, which you could argue is quite inefficient because the more men you have, the more light casualties you're going to have. Uh, and it's only that spearhead that is driving forward that Bewegenskrieg, that Blitzkrieg, that kind of lightning war, surging forward, knocking your enemy off balance in cahoots with the Luftwaffe. The vast majority of the German forces are getting from A to B on their own two feet and by horse. And just to put that in perspective, Britain has 10 divisions in France in 1940, France and Belgium in 1940. The French have 105. The Germans uh, have 135. The Dutch, I think, have 20. But of those 135 German divisions, each division about sort of 15,000, 16,000 men, only 16 are mechanised. And only 10 are the notorious, infamous Panzer divisions. So, you know, it really is just the spearhead. Nor are their tanks or, uh, particularly enormous. This is or, or, or powerful or anything. You know, the French tanks on paper are much better armed, much better armoured than, uh, than, than the German ones. This is a Panzer Mark I. You can see it's just got a brace of machine guns on it. It's about six foot high, and it's frankly pretty puny. Uh, what they have sorted out is how you coordinate uh, motorised infantry with motorised artillery uh, and tanks, and you coordinate it all through radio. And that is the kind of USP of the Panzer Division and the Blitzkrieg tactics. Um, but they're not massively mechanised. In fact, they're one of the least automotive societies in the Western world in 1940. And there is a bit of a problem with dive bombing, frankly. Uh, one of the reasons why 338,000 men um, successfully escaped from Dunkirk is because... The dive bombers, the Stukas, don't do their job. The thing is about Stukas is they're great if you're hitting a, a kind of fixed target. And the principle behind it is quite sound. You don't have GPS. You don't have laser-guided rockets or anything like this. You've just got effectively human judgment and, and, a, and a physical bomb that you release the catch and down it whistles. Uh, and that's how you, you, you drop your bombs in 1940-style. So with Stuka, you might start your dive at around 6,000 feet. Well, that's great if, you're, if you have complete command of the skies, if your Messerschmitts overhead are doing their job, clearing the skies of Spitfires and Hurricanes and Moraines and Dewatines and all the rest of it. Uh, um, and you then do your dive down and you pull out at about kind of sort of 2,000 feet, 1,000 feet, something like that, and drop your bomb. The principle behind it is, is if you can get quite accurate, if you, if you, the lower you get, the more accurate you're going to be. The more accurate you're going to be, the less bombs you need. The less bombs you need, the less planes you need. So on paper, dive bombing is quite a good idea. The problem is, is when they're trying to stop the evacuation in May 1940, in May and early June 1940, they are attacking British... Royal Navy destroyers crammed full of troops, uh, and they don't look like a whopping great factory. They look like a pencil. And not only that, that pencil's wobbling around all over the place. And it's almost next to impossible to hit it. So what you'll see is lots of, here is lots of accounts of people who, who managed to get away off the mole or off the beaches or whatever and go head back to Blighty. Uh, and they were, they were describing Stukas attacking and huge fountains of spray and water and all the rest of it. But the point is they weren't actually being hit. They were, they were near misses, but they weren't actually being hit. And that was one of the failings of Stukas. 
Not only that, they were quite badly hammered by the, the waiting Spitfires and Hurricanes who were above. The problem is, is that most of the people on the ground couldn't see them because the cloud level was very low over Dunkirk during the evacuation. And also there was a huge pull from the uh, oil depot that had been set on fire, was chucking out vast amounts of black smoke. So that's why the guys on the ground couldn't see the RAF and were complaining about the fact, well, you know, where the hell's the RAF? Actually, the RAF were there and they were shooting down large numbers of Stukas. But unfortunately for the Luftwaffe, but great news for us, was that by that stage they were already too far entrenched with their obsession with dive bombing. The general staff of the Luftwaffe was just obsessed with it. And once they saw how effective the Stukas were, they thought, you know what, we should do dive bombing with everything. Wouldn't that be a great idea? And everyone goes, yeah, brilliant. So what they do is they get, they, they're developing this, which is a Junkers 88. And this is supposed to be a long-range, um, fast, over 300 miles an hour, um, good, decent, twin-engine bomber, medium bomber, with a fairly sizable two-ton payload. And then the Luftwaffe general staff go, do you know what, you good folk at Junkers, what about giving us some dive bombing capabilities? And the good folk at Junkers do lots and lots of teeth sucking and say, well, we could do, but it's not really designed for that. I mean, you know, it can, but it'll cost you. And they go, no, 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 we want dive bombing. So, um, so they go, okay, fine, but that's what you're the boss. So they go off and start making it. And the end of that is, is that production gets put back by months and months and months, which is why in the Blitzkrieg of 1940, catchphrase, not a doctrine, uh, and, and the subsequent... Uh, Battle of Britain, there are hardly any Junkers 88s because they just haven't built enough of them um, because they're trying to adapt it to turn it into a dive bomber. There are a few, but not many. And of course, by the time they have finished it and given it dive bombing capabilities, it's not quite as fast as it was because they've had to make it heavier. Uh, and, and it's not as quite as long range as it was. And really, it's only fractionally better than the Dornier 17s and Heinkel 111s, which are frankly already obsolescent by 1940 standards. So in other words, they've kind of turned what was really, really good into something that's not half as good as it once was. But not content with that, they then decide that they should give a four-engine bomber dive bombing capabilities. I mean, have you ever thought anything more ridiculous in your life? I mean, I am no aviation aeronautical engineer, but even I can tell you that something that size should not be made into a dive bomber. It just simply is not going to work. Now, you may say to me, oh, but that's only a twin-engine bomber. That's not a four-engine bomber. And I would have to say to you, you're wrong. That is a four-engine bomber. And this just makes you realise just how completely ridiculous this idea is. That has two engines Sandwiched like that, powering one propeller shaft. It looks like a dog, it is a complete dog, and lots of the finest um, uh, uh, test pilots the Luftwaffe had were killed trying to make this thing work. And they never, ever developed a long-range, heavy, four-engine bomber that was successful and successfully brought into, into, um, into the Luftwaffe's operation. They did, however, have the preeminent number one fighter aircraft in 1940. And this, of course, is a Messerschmitt 109E. You can't just say Spitfire, Messerschmitt 109. They're different because they're constantly being developed. Now, the 109E is really interesting because it's, it has the best uh, climbing rate in 1940. It has the best diving speed in 1940. And it packs a much bigger punch than the British equivalent. So it has 55 seconds of ammunition. It has a combination of cannons and machine guns. And actually, because of these things here, it can actually even out-turn um, a Spitfire, which is one of the things the Spitfire is supposed to have over the 109. Not a lot of people knew how to do that. But basically, as you go into a turn, your speed gets lower. At a certain point, you put this. This increases the, um, the, the size of the wing, which lowers the wing loading, which then means that you uh, um, can actually do a tighter circle. Uh, and, and that's, but again, only the very skilled do that. But my point is, 
This is really good. The only, the only thing about it, you can see this sort of horrible canopy of it sort of looking like a sort of prison, prison bars over it. I mean, that is not good. Um, but it is a really, really fine aircraft by 1940 standards. And, and, and the Spitfire Mark I, Spitfire goes on to be the best thing ever, but um, obviously. But, but, but it's, in 1940, it is not quite to the level of the 109. There is, however, another plane that the, the uh, Luftwaffe could have used, but they didn't. They decided not to commission. This is the Heinkel 112. And it is a really, really fine fighter plane. You might be able to see that this is actually elliptical wings. It looks rather like the Spitfire. Okay, it's got this sort of dip gull wing thing, but basically it looks very similar to a Spitfire in many ways. It's got cannons. It's got machine guns. It's got that 55 seconds. It's got a very wide undercarriage, which means it's very, it's really good news if you're a Greenhorn pilot because it's got, a, it's much stable on the ground. It's much stable, more stable when it takes off as well. Uh, and much easier to land than a 109, which has a comparatively narrow undercarriage. It has incredible range. This thing can do about 750 miles, which is just unheard of for a single-engine fighter plane by 1940 standards. Its rate of climb is almost as good as the 109E's. Um, its, its rate of dive is, and yet they don't use it. And you have to ask yourself, why on earth not? Eric Winkle-Brown, the great legendary uh, um, test pilot, much preferred this to the 109E. He said it was a, in a different league as far as he was concerned. The canopy was good. It was just an absolute joy to fly, etc., etc. Instead, they chose to have a twin-engine fighter, the Messerschmitt 110. And this was because Goering really liked the look of this one. He called it the Zestora, the destroyer. Goering really liked kind of sort of melodramatic names of things. So Eagle Day, Attack of the Eagles, Destroyers, and so on. Very much in, in keeping with his character. Uh, um, but this is not good as an air-to-air -air fighter. It's... it's fine as a night fighter later on, uh, because the problem is, is they don't have the maneuverability, they don't have the climb speed, they don't have the dive speed that a single-engine fighter has. So you ask yourself, well, how can this be? Well, it's as simple as this, that Hitler really liked Messerschmitt, Messerschmitt really liked Hitler, and uh, they got on well, and Willy Messerschmitt was a good party man, and um, uh, Heinkel wasn't, and had just a whiff of Jewish blood somewhere. So whenever he kicked up a stink and said, oh, this is not fair, my Heinkel 112 is really good, uh, then they'd just go, oh, I think I wouldn't make too much of a fuss about it if I were you, Professor Heinkel. And he'd go, yeah, no, OK, fair point, uh, and back off. And that is basically what happened. And today it seems silly, but it wasn't at all. It was deeply sinister at the time, and that is why they didn't have this amazing coupling. I mean, just imagine how powerful the, the, the Luftwaffe would have been with this coupling of the incredibly long-range, versatile Heinkel 112 and the, and the brilliance of the 109. That would have been a, a force to reckon with. Also, the other problem is, is that in May 1940, and this is really important to the Battle of Britain and to subsequent um, operations, is that on the 10th of May, that opening day of the uh, attack in the West, the Luftwaffe lost a staggering 353 aircraft on that one day. I mean, that is the worst day the Luftwaffe has till the middle of 1943. You know, there is no day in the Battle of Britain that it, that it comes close. I think the worst day they have is something like when they lose 86 or something. But, but 353, and most of them are transport planes. And that is something they never recover from. And that is also going to be a problem for delivering supposed um, paratroopers over Britain later on, should it have ever come to uh, an invasion. You know, the Germans do not have it all their own way in the Blitzkrieg. What they should have been doing, what they could have been doing to really damage Britain, 
in the summer of 1940 is trying to sink lots and lots of our shipping, which was continuing to come in in huge, vast amounts of supplies coming in from all around the world, from Argentina, from North America, from all around the world, and indeed going to all around the world as well. That shipping was just enormous, the amount of shipping that was going on for, for, on Britain's behalf, on part of our war effort in the summer of 1940. The problem was that uh, in the part of the Z plan, which is a proposed naval plan before the war for Germany, they decided to focus on surface vessels because they looked bigger and made them feel more powerful. What they should have been building, of course, is U-boats. And despite Admiral Dönitz's best efforts to persuade them otherwise, he was the commander-in-chief of the U-boat force, they started the war with just 3,000 men in the, U-boat, uh, in the U-boat arm, and in the whole of 1940, never had more than 14 U-boats operating in the Atlantic at any one time against Britain. That was the most, half, most of the time, it was considerably less than that. They did have this happy time that they called it, which was um, sort of, you know, July, August, September, October, where they were sinking kind of really sizable amounts of shipping, 350,000 tons, 450,000 tons in a month. But all this has to be contextualised. So in the whole of the year of 1940, Britain um, had uh, 17,882 ships at sea over the course of the year and 167 convoys. And in that whole time, only 127 ships were sunk. So that is 0.7% of the shipping that was launched. So in other words... Not that huge amount, really, in the big scheme of things. And certainly, that was a loss that Britain could handle. And the only reason they did so well in that time was because most of the Royal Navy, which normally would have been protecting the convoys, was busy on anti-invasion watch down in the southeast. And arguably shouldn't have been, but, but was. So they never had enough. The other thing they had, these boats are just amazing. These are uh, what we called e-boats. They called Schnellbooter. Uh, I'm incredibly fast, can do about 50 knots, arm to the teeth, absolutely lethal, but they are just works of art. I mean, there's one left in the world, and you should see the craftsmanship on it, which, of course, is why they can't make very many of them, and that is why there was never more than a dozen in operation in the whole of 1940. And that is just not enough to sever Britain's supply lines. Then you think about the Luftwaffe themselves. Well, you know, by July, they're really full of themselves. They've had a gr- series of great victories, Again, this is just, I love this picture because you can see, look at, look at this guy. Okay, so he's got, um, um, oh, that's not working. Okay, well, you can see he's got leather boots, big breeches, cotton jacket, wool jacket, leather jacket, leather trousers, leather boots. I mean, how many uniforms do you need to fly a Messerschmitt? Obviously a lot if you're German because the look is all part of it. But then you look at these guys and I love this. I mean, you notice this there? It's wearing slippers. I mean... <laughs> How cool is that? Going up in your hurricane wearing slippers. I love that kind of sort of insouciance that there is about fighter command. And actually, that's very real. You know, we're, we're kind of laughing about it. But there is a kind of sort of laid-back attitude, which I think, you know, is, is, does favour teamwork a little bit. Um, you know, British, British pilots go off to battle in just, you know, they're given two blue suits. One for sort of going to funerals or getting awarded your DFC, and another one, obviously, for flying. And you can see that Absolutely filthy. Uh, um, you know, no one's, no one's pressed his trousers in a while. Uh, but, but I think that's great. I mean, you know, the, 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 there is a sort of serious point to all this, and that is that there is a kind of... There's just a different mindset going on between the British and, and the, the uh, Germans. When I first saw this picture, I assumed this was some sort of... Uh, this had been left over from a sort of Cold War base by the Soviet Union or something from 1989. How wrong I was. This is a German 1940s period, complete 360-degree rotational radar. 
interestingly, they used one of these, but it was the Navy that developed it, the Kriegsmarine that developed this radar. I mean, it was absolutely brilliant. I mean, it was so much better than anything anyone else had in the world at that time. Uh, and interestingly, they once coordinated with, I think it was JG-27 or JG-27, anyway, some fighter unit in March to shoot down a whole load of British bombers that were going to attack Wilhelmshaven. And they used radar to help them. And it was a massacre from the RAS point of view. Um, but they never used radar again. So they didn't use radar in the summer of 1940 at all, and they certainly didn't use it against Britain. Britain's radar chain was, was as nothing in terms of sophistication compared to the Germans. But what we did was used all we had very, very successfully. So we created, or Dowding, under Dowding's control, command, uh, he was commander of chief of fighting command, developed the world's first fully coordinated air, um, air defence system. And this was really, really fantastic because no one had ever seen anything like it. And suddenly, instead of the Luftwaffe ruling the roost and choosing exactly when and where they were going to attack and, and, and getting all those hurricanes and spitfires on them, shooting them up on the ground. We knew exactly what was going on. And it wasn't just radar. It was the observer corps. It was high-frequency direction finding. It was ground controllers vectoring, sending the, uh, the fighter pilots, scrambling them and sending them up into the air and directing them towards the enemy formations. That, you kill two birds with one stone. First of all, you're not on the ground when the Luftwaffe come a-calling, um, so you're not going to be shot up on the ground. Secondly, it means you can attack them. You know when they're coming. There's no more flailing around the skies of northern France and Flanders hoping to bump into some Dorniers. You now know they're coming and you can attack them and shoot them down. And that changes everything. And the point about the, the British defence system, this, the radar, the, the, ins, the sort of lack of sophistication on the radar, is when you put it all together with all these other components and identification friend and foe and all the rest of it and, and huff duff, when you put it all those component parts, they all collectively add up to much more than the sum of their individual parts. And together, you've got a brilliant, brilliant system, um, which is completely new to military operations. No one's ever seen anything like this before. And... It is absolutely stunning. I cannot stress enough how good, how successful, how slick and just efficient the whole air defence system is and, and what an advantage that gives Britain for when the Luftwaffe are going to come attacking in the summer of 1940. On top of that... Um, we have really, really sorted out our aircraft production. Britain in 1940 is really kicking into gear. There's lots of things we haven't been doing um, as early as the Germans. We haven't been building as many tanks early or, or indeed aircraft, but we are playing catch up and we are, are catching up very, very fast. You know, by the middle of 1941, we are absolutely outproducing Germany in terms of tanks, ships, pretty much everything. But, but in the summer of 1940, we're also outproducing them in terms of um, aircraft. And one of the reasons we were able to do that is because Churchill has um, got in one of his best mates, a chap called Lord Beaverbrook, uh, the press baron, a Canadian, uh, by all accounts, not the most pleasant man on the planet, but really, really good at, uh, at making things happen. And he, the change around is absolutely incredible. Lots of the stuff that, that, uh, that, that uh, Beaverbrook makes the most of things like shadow factories, um, extra factories producing um, aircraft, have already been put in place. But it is he that gives the massive impetus. So he takes over on, I think it was the 15th or 16th of May, the first ever min uh, Minister of Aircraft Production. And by the end of July, the number of um, new uh, um, uh, 
aircraft coming out has risen by something like 86%. Uh, and what is also really interesting, he's completely overhauled the civilian repair organizations, the CRU. And the number of repaired engines and aircraft that is coming back to, being sent back to squadrons has also risen by 182%. I mean, really, really big, big numbers. And, and this is absolutely true. Every day more planes, every day more pilots, absolutely bang on the money. July 1940, Britain produces 496 single-engine fighters, i.e. Hurricanes and Spitfires. In that same month, the the Luftwaffe managed to build 237 Messerschmitt 109s. So less than half. And that is a ratio that actually gets worse as the summer continues. So that by the end of the Battle of Britain, by the end of, end of October, beginning of November 1940, you're in a situation where we, uh, in Fighter Command, have got more fighter planes than they started the battle with, around 750 rather than 640. And the Luftwaffe have gone from about 750 down to about 175. So those lines have just completely gone in opposite directions. Uh, just a quick note about the planes. I mean, it's interesting, the Hurricane down below, this is a Hawker Hart, I think it is, or a Fury, I can't remember which one, but you can see the heritage, can't you? You can see the tailplane looks exactly the same, the, the cowling looks much the same. Um, this is also Irish linen over, over metal um, struts on the inside, um, obviously doped up. And uh, this makes good sense because one of the problems about suddenly developing a new aircraft is the machine tools. You have to create, you know, you, you, creating new machine tools to create new aircraft takes time. Uh, and the beauty about the Hawker Hurricane is a lot of the machine tools and a lot of the training which people have been using for years at Hawker, building hearts and furies and all the rest of it, that's already there. So you don't have to change too much to get to that. The problem is, of course, is that by 1940, this is at the end of its development cycle already. Whereas the, Spit, uh, the Spitfire is a completely new design, uh, and this is sort of like a Formula One car compared to just a sort of everyday saloon of a, of a Hurricane, for example. Um, and one of the reasons why there aren't so many Spitfires in 1940 is that same reason. They've had to start from scratch. You know, they've had to build all those machine tools, get everyone trained up to, to make them, and that, of course, takes time. And they're more, slightly more complicated to make than a Hurricane, and that's why there's fewer. But this is a really, really good plane, and, and, it, and it's at the beginning of its development cycle, and obviously it goes on to have 24 different marks, and, you know, know, gets upgunned and up-powered and, and all the rest of it through the Second World War. But in 1940, it is still inferior to the 109. And one of the reasons is, is because when it dies, it doesn't have uh, fuel injection. So what happens is the, the, the carburetor gets, um, uh, uh, um, gets flooded. Uh, and for a moment, just for a moment, it cuts out. And then once the negative G is, is righted, then, then it'll open up again. But in that moment, that Messerschmitt that's diving away from it will have the... Will, will, have it still, you know, still a march on it. Um, just a, a fraction of a second or even a second or two. The other problem, of course, is that both the Hurricane and Spitfire are armed with uh, .303 Browning machine guns. And actually, I came across this note that was written in 1926, which said, under no circumstances should uh, our, our fighters be equipped with uh, .303 Brownings in air for air-to-air -air combat. They're using pea shooters. Uh, and unfortunately, they're sort of largely, largely right. And the point was proved when 74 Squadron, famously or infamously, depending on which way you look at it, uh, fired some 7,000 bullets at a single Dornier 17 and still failed to shoot it down. I mean, it's just, you know, the only way you can shoot things down with, a, with, a, um, with Browning machine guns, because they're so small, these bullets, is by getting incredibly close or just being lucky. I mean, obviously, there are soft bots on, a, on, on any plane. So, um, you know, not having cannons is a, is a massive disadvantage. And also, they have 14.7 seconds compared to the Messerschmitt 109 and, and 110's uh, 55 seconds. So quite a disparity, to be perfectly honest. 
Summer of 1940 then, beginning of July, Hitler is in a dilemma. He's had his big triumph. Everyone thinks in Germany that it's all over, that the war is done. Uh, um, but it isn't, of course, because Britain hasn't come to the peace table. Britain still has to be dealt with. And what's he going to do? Well, what he does do is he goes to Bavaria. He goes to the Ober Salzburg. He goes to the Berghof. And this is a bit like Churchill in the middle of this time, sort of going up to his, his, you know, his log cabin on Ben Nevis or something. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Uh, and while he's there, he spends lots of time with Eva Braun and his, his dog Blondie. Uh, and he gets, first of all, he gets the commander in chief of the army, then the uh, Luftwaffe, then the Kriegsmarine, and says, okay, what's your plan for the invasion of Britain? There is absolutely no joint combined arms operation planning at all. And all of them come up with different plans. None of them are going to work at all. Um, uh, and frankly, strategically, it is, makes no sense whatsoever. What he's hoping is that Britain's going to come to the peace table. They're not, because um, Britain can see that actually there's lots to be said for, for continuing the fight, and they've got lots of um, advantages. But because Hitler is a continentalist, because he doesn't have that statesmanship or geopolitical understanding of someone like Churchill, you know, he can't see it. He, he has this fatal flaw of looking at everything through the prism of his own worldview, uh, which is very narrow. So that's a problem. On top of that, Bomber Command is still bombing Germany and the embryonic Luftwaffe airfields in northern France on a kind of pretty much daily basis and nightly basis. And that really gets on the nerves of the Germans who think that the war is over and don't take kindly at all to being attacked, even if very, very inaccurately, by Bomber Command. The other problem, of course, is the knock-on effect of that is that all those airfields which are hurriedly being built in northern France and Normandy have to have anti-aircraft protection put to them because basically around the Pas-de-Calais it is now fighter airfield heaven. I mean, it is what, what, from Bomber Command's point of view, is a target-rich environment. And it doesn't matter how inaccurate they are, they can hardly miss. There's so many of them all rammed together in the Pas de Calais. Uh, but they need defences, they need anti-aircraft guns, and they need uh, pens made and, and, and uh, camouflage for their 109s and all the rest of it. And this, of course, takes time, which is why the battle only slowly gets into gear. You know, through July, it's attacks on shipping, it's attacks on ports in southern, southern England and so on. But it's not the real proper, you know, the not the real all-out attack, the, the, the Adler Angriff, the attack of the eagles, as, as Goering calls it. And that's why the Goering is, just doesn't feel he's ready until the beginning of August. And what he reckons is it's going to take him three days to knock out the RAF. Uh, um, and then he gives himself another day for luck, uh, just for good measure. So basically, as soon as he's got four clear days, that's it, the, the RAF are going to be toast. That's his theory. But, but although he's ready at the beginning of August, that four-day window doesn't look like it's going to appear until the 13th of August. Aglatog, Eagle Day, um, which is why it's not launched till then. The problem is, is actually he has no understanding of what the British situation is at all. Um, he is served by his chief intelligence officer, who's a chap called Beppo Schmidt, who is a Luftwaffe intelligence, runs an, uh, a Luftwaffe intelligence unit, but is also on um, um, Goering's personal staff. Um, he's a, a, a beer hall, a hall putsch man, uh, an early Nazi. Um, he likes his grog. Um, he's never left Germany. He sucks up to Goering like you don't know what. Um, he says all the right things, particularly particularly good about um, saying how good the Messerschmitt 109 Zerstorer is. Um, but basically, his idea on intelligence is absolutely hopeless. Uh, and in the intelligence brief he produces in July 1940 is just absolutely astonishing for just how bad it is. Um, and there is just, again, there is no joined-up use of intelligence whatsoever. In Germany, Nazi Germany, intelligence is power. Because it's power, you tend to hang on to it. It's not like a democracy like Britain where everyone's all sort of in it together. You might have um, inter-service rivalries and interdepartmental rivalries and so on. But even so, people are working to a common goal in a way they're not 
um, in Nazi Germany. And so when they do launch their attack, um, they quickly give up on the, on the radar stations. They have one day on the 12th of, 12th of August where they attack the radar stations. It doesn't really work. And they go, oh, let's not bother with that anyway. Who cares? You know, we're going to win. So what's the point of bothering with the, with the radar stations? It really is basically as crass as that. Uh, and what's really interesting is within 11 days, 24th of August, the Stukas, the dive bombers, are completely withdrawn and the battle's so badly hammered, are they? And really, if there's ever a kind of an example of how misguided this, this sort of putting all your eggs in one basket of, of dive bombing has been, it is this. Um, you know, it's, a, it's a, a, a massive admission of failure on the part of, part of the Luftwaffe. The 109s, are, the fighter pilots are criticised. They're not able to go. Um, Goering says, you need to keep your, you know, you, too many bombers are being destroyed. You know, that's the fault of the escorts, the fighter escorts. You're supposed to be looking after the bombers. You know, from now on, I want you to have close escort to the bombers. Well, this just makes no sense because the advantages of the 109, it's extreme speed. It's able to kind of run rings around other fighter planes. You suddenly can't do that if you're having to sort of chug along doing weaving steps at kind of, you know, um, 200 miles an hour. It doesn't work. Um, and so they're not able to be used at their best ability. Throughout August and into the first week of September, there's all sorts of aerial battles. There's a love this picture by Paul Nash, but it's, it's sort of very evocative of the kind of scenes that were being played out over southern England. Then on the night of the 24th, 25th of August, uh, um, Bomber Command, in response to an attack by um, mistaken attack by the Luftwaffe on London, they go and attack Berlin. This is not a scene in London. This is attack, a scene in Berlin uh, of the rubble being cleared up. And actually, they then go and attack Berlin four nights uh, four different times. Um, this is an outrage to the Nazi high command, and of course they can't put up with it. You know, they have to have to react to it. But to start off, they don't. Meanwhile, their policy of attacking the RAF on the ground and attacking the, uh, the airfields is also failing miserably. Now, when you... You know, for the for the uneducated eye on the ground, or, or for the for the Spitfire pilots and Hurricane pilots that are attacking these large formations, you know, it seems incredibly lopsided. But in actual fact, the point is, is that the Luftwaffe is simply not a big enough force to do the job that is being asked of it, which is to destroy in its own right, operate strategically without not as close air support for the army, but to operate on their own to destroy the RAF. And one of the big problems is you look at this picture of um, aerial picture of Hawkinge. You know, that airfield is huge. It's like 100 acres. And the reason it's grass is because that means that, that Spitfires and Hurricanes can take off any which way they like. You can take off immediately into the wind. So you can take off that way, that way, that way, whatever way you want. Um, and, of course, the other beauty of it is it's very, very easy to repair. Luftwaffe come over, they bomb it, lots of craters. Well, that's no problem because Dowding's thought of that already. There's big piles of scalpings and gravel and soil to the side. And they go and bulldoze them in. You know, half an hour later, they're good to go again. Uh, and that is why in the whole of the Battle of Britain, only one airfield is knocked out for more than 24 hours in that whole period. And that's Manston. And they, they deliberately leave it um, un, unrepaired because it's right on the toe of, of Kent. Very interesting, this is Tom Neal, the legend that is Tom Neal in the centre. And he told me an amazing story when his, his first flight from North Weald, uh, just uh, on that corner of the M25 and the M11 is where it is now. Uh, um, on the 3rd of July, uh, 3rd of September 1940, he took off with, you know, 11 other Hurricanes from 249 Squadron, saw the uh, airfield come under attack. It disappeared under clouds of smoke and dust and all the rest of it. And he thought, crikey, how am I ever going to get back down again? And I said to him, well, obviously you did. He said, oh, yes, yes, actually we all did. We just dodged the potholes. Uh, 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 that's the point. You know, that's what they did. Um, and that's why the Luftwaffe were not at all close to winning um, on the se September, you know, but by the second, by the first week of September. The other thing was there was a completely different culture within the uh, um, RAF and the Luftwaffe. 
Luftwaffe and also there was a crucial home advantage. These are some chaps from 92 Squadron who were particularly notorious for, for being party party animals, you know, sort of cane it all night, get absolutely drunk, you know, pop a kind of, you know, a little booster pill, um, quick puff of the uh, oxygen mask and off they go again at kind of four the following morning. But, 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 you know, not everyone was like that. But there is certainly a huge advantage to going down to the pub and everyone saying, oh, you're a hero, have the drinks on me and all the rest. It makes you feel good about yourself. And of course, Dowding was very keen on making sure that he looked after his pilots. So, you know, he would insist that there would be 24 hours off every... Um, Every uh, every week and forty eight hours off every every three weeks, and that if people were getting tired, they'd be sent north to Acklington or whatever, you know. So he really looked after his men, and they were encouraged not to talk shop once the, the, they were stood down for the day. The same was not the case of the Luftwaffe, who just endlessly wrote combat reports, argued and talked about tactics and how depressed they were all getting. And of course, even if they did have a chance to go to a pub, um, instead of being patted on the back and told what heroes they were, uh, they were, they'd have a sort of suspicious Frenchman sort of silently snarling. In the corner and polishing his glass you know so so it wasn't the same at all um and they just flew and flew and flew they were not given uh um days off you know every week and 48 hours off every three they were expected to just keep flying and keep flying and keep flying and the mental and physical toil on the Luftwaffe was far greater than it ever was on fighter command this is a depiction of Jeff Wellham, the leg- another legend uh, and a lovely fellow and an old friend of mine and wrote brilliant First Light, which if any of you haven't read it, you absolutely must because it's fantastic. But this is a depiction of him and Brian Kingham about to um, attack a formation of sort of 200 plus or something. Now, I must just again contextualise this because one of the myths of the Battle of Britain is that we were massively outnumbered all the time. We weren't. The Luftwaffe had about 2,500 aircraft full stop uh, on paper uh, and that actually meant about 1,600 to 1,500 that were available to operate on any one day rather than uh, uh, the 2,500. Because there's operational strength and then there's actual strength and there's combat-ready strength. And the combat-ready strength was only around 1,500. Now, if you added all our bombers and all our coastal command aircraft, actually, we'd have been about, you know, not far off it. We were about sort of 1,100, 1,200 planes in total. But, of course, the argument is is RAF fighter command, just the fighters against that. And that is more like about sort of 650, 700 planes against 1,500. So kind of two-to-one advantage. Most people would not consider attacking unless they had a three-to-one advantage. They do not have that advantage at all. And what you also have to understand Understand is that in a formation of 300, 100 of those would have been bombers and 200 of them would have been fighter escorts of 109s and 110s. Now, at the moment, you are in your squadron. You are Jeff with 92 Squadron. There's 12 of you in the air. Uh, at the point of attacking that 300 formation, you are obviously massively outnumbered. But overall, on a day's battle, you probably wouldn't be. And a very good case of points is the 15th of September 1940, Battle of Britain Day, as it's become to be known. Two major raids that day over southeast London. First one, Peaked at around 12 o'clock. On that formation, there were about 75 enemy aircraft. So 25 Dornier 17s, 50 109 and 110s uh, escorting them, which were met by at least 285 Spitfires and Hurricanes. In the afternoon, the second one, the big one, the famous one where Churchill's looking and says, what reserves are there in Park? Commander of 11 Group says, there are none. Well, OK, that's true, but he's ignoring the other kind of 350 that are all around the country. He's just talking about the reserves in his particular area of operations. On that particular occasion, a formation of 300 plus is met by 330 Spitfires and Hurricanes. Again, as a squadron, you're attacking as one of 12, you know, uh, as, a, as a pilot, you are one of 12 in a squadron attacking that formation of 300. But overall... It's, it's, it's not quite as outnumbered as you think. And, of course, that's one of the reasons why we win. 
Uh, hurricanes, big problem because uh, the big fear was was burning. Um, the, uh, the sorry, sorry, say blurred. The, the fuel tanks are here, and once you fired your guns, the wind whistles in here, flies the, the the flames into into the into the into the cockpit. So you've literally got about three seconds to get out. But of course, if you do get out, you can be you know maybe you're shot down at sort of um, 11:35 in the morning. You might be flying again by 4:30 that afternoon. Whereas for the Germans, of course, once they're shot down, for them the war is over. And again, that is a huge advantage to the um, to uh, um, fighter command. The other great advantage we have is we have a brilliant um, commander in Keith Park. He's the commander of... Um, how am I doing? <laughs> Time to get a move on. I'm not going to go into squadron classification, but Park is brilliant, just take my word for it. Moving swiftly on. Um, September the 5th, uh, September the 7th, 1940, of course, this is when, when the, uh, the Blitz starts. This is when Hitler's patience finally... Uh, ends and he goes, you know, that's it. We've got to attack London. Um, and you'd have thought, you know, a couple of really hard hits over that weekend might have, you know, salvaged their honour uh, and wounded pride and all the rest of it. But no, they keep going till May the following year. And of course, the point is, if you're trying to destroy the air force, you can't do that while you're hitting London. You've either got to do one thing or the other. And um, you know, it, it is a strategically and tactically, it is a it is a policy that makes no sense whatsoever. And it's jolly bad luck on all the Londoners, but in the big scheme of things, 18,000 tonnes, which has dropped on London in that time, deaths of the Blitz around 43,000. It's a lot, but it's as nothing to what is going to happen to Germany in the years that follow. You know, that hundred, those 100 bombers that are attacking on the 15th of September in the afternoon, you know, compare that to the 3,500 bombers that attacked Ber uh, Hamburg in July 1943. The 18,000 tonnes of bombs that are dropped on London, compare that with 197,000 tonnes of bombs which is dropped on France alone in the nine weeks preceding D-Day. It's taken to a different scale. Um, and what that does mean, of course, is that they're no longer attacking the airfields quite so much. Um, we still have more Spitfires than we started with. And because of Park's very clever uh, pilot rotation scheme, which I won't go into now, uh, um, that means that actually the crisis of pilots uh, shortage, which happens right at the end of August, beginning of September, is done, uh, is over. Uh, and this is a picture of Hyatt Herman, who I met, who is a, was a senior Luftwaffe uh, uh, officer, staff officer later on in the war, but in 1940 was a bomber pilot. Uh, and on the 14th of October, he'd just flown something like four missions in a row over consecutive nights, and was taking off from Schiphol. He'd flown in the Sp in Spanish Civil War, he'd flown in Poland, he'd flown in Norway, he'd flown in France, he'd flown throughout the Battle of Britain, he was already on his 97th mission at that point. You consider that most British people in Bomber Command would never have been expected to fly more than 50. Uh, um, he'd already on 97 by the end of 1940. And he took off from Schiphol, and as he did it, the bom Bomber Command came over, bombed Schiphol, uh, and a shard of shrapnel from one of the bomb blasts he punctured his tyre uh, on his Heinkel 111. Uh, oh, no, Junkers. He was in Junkers, one of the dive-bombing Junkers by that stage. Slewed off. Um, he cracked his head open, knocked unconscious. And when he woke up a few days later, he saw this, his iron cross hanging on his bedside table. And he looked at it and said, where did that come from? And they said, don't you remember, uh, Herr Kapitan, uh, Herr Hauptmann, rather? Um, you know, you were awarded that by, by Kessering himself just a few days before. And he looked at it and burst into tears. And he is one of the toughest, meanest Nazis I've ever met. And, uh, and certainly one of the toughest Air, you know, Air Force pilots. And yet he was a broken man by October, middle of October 1940, as were the rest of the Luftwaffe. It was not a draw, as some Germans tried to claim, or some historians tried to claim. It was a great, great victory. But it wasn't because we were Little Britain, it was because we were a fantastic nation that was really prepared for that battle and executed that battle plan really superbly. Thank you.
That was James Holland speaking at our 2015 History Weekend event at Malmesbury. And we'll be holding more history events in future, so do keep an eye on the magazine, our social media and historyextra.com for details of those. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time for more exciting history content. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. And for more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com. It's packed with articles, quizzes, image galleries and much more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.